It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, and watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV Plus. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. How have children and families going through the court system been impacted by the pandemic? And how have the courts addressed the challenges, both human and technological? My guest is Judge David Katz of the Superior Court of New Jersey. He was recently inducted as president of the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, the oldest judicial membership organization in the country. Welcome, Judge Katz. Thanks for having me, June. It's really an honor to be here to represent the NCJFCJ and to talk about these important issues. Across the country, we saw many courts shut down or scale back during the pandemic. How did the pandemic you know, basically affect the family and juvenile courts? Well, what traditionally has been the case with family courts, mostly across the country, is we were generally a, a paper-driven docket. Some courts have uh, you know, gone to things such as e-courts or electronic filing or things like that. But a lot of the courts across the country were still a paper-driven docket. So when the uh, courts faced the pandemic, and obviously people couldn't come into the building necessarily, first thing a lot of our jurisdictions had to do was convert from a paper-driven system to a digital system. And that obviously took training and time and new processes and new procedures had to be put in place. So that in and of itself caused you know, some delay and, and things like that and, and some adjustments. And then in addition to that, The pandemic has certainly affected our ability to bring cases in the way we used to bring them in. And there have been a lot of pros and and cons as a result of the lessons we learned from the pandemic. I think on balance, it just moved us forward with technology enhancements and just a better understanding on how to make courts perhaps a little more convenient for court users. Did you find that virtual hearings are better in some cases than in-person hearings, or is it better to have the child or the adult in the courtroom? It's really kind of a mixed bag, if you will. Just some of the uh, advantages are pretty clear. First of all, there's a significant cross-the-country transportation issue uh, in getting to courthouses and things like that. I tell our judges here, you know, we drive in every day for years, probably could do with our eyes closed. But a lot of of the court users that come here may have to take two buses sometimes, and buses break, cars break down. 
and transportation in the greatest parts of our country, the, the largest parts of our country, are just not what we'd like them to be. So it's very difficult for people to get to court. Obviously, if you do something virtually, you've addressed that problem. In addition, we're able to do time certain for uh, some parts of our docket, so people don't have to take a whole day off of work necessarily. And in the past, people would come down and sometimes they'd end up with just an adjournment order. And it could be a, you know an afternoon or a morning that was just not productive. Things like that are greatly enhanced by digital proceedings. Now, also, um, we find in the domestic violence, sometimes the victims are more comfortable in a virtual setting because they don't have to be in the same courtroom as the um, defendant. And our judges are able to make credibility determinations. You know, the resolutions of these virtual proceedings are very clear. So, you know, judges can uh, look at all the uh, and use all the factors that they use for uh, assessing credibility. That's an enhancement also. And so I think on balance, uh, we've learned uh, quite a bit. As I said, we can also do uh, breakout rooms if necessary, where the attorneys can meet with their litigants. And sometimes in some of these cases, it was harder for the attorneys to meet with their litigants before some of the cases were called. And now through Zoom or through the virtual proceedings, they can do that. On the other side of the coin, you know, we still are dealing with internet access and connectivity issues, sometimes with presentation of exhibits. It could be difficult. A lot of times uh, witnesses have uh, information on their cell phone and they're not able to transmit that into hard copy or, or they're not able to provide that digitally. And the other issue that I think we're facing in, in some parts is really what they're calling a Zoom fatigue. It is a little bit difficult sometimes to be on Zoom all day as opposed to being in the courtroom all day. It's frustrating because you could be in the middle of a sentence and you lose your internet connection <laughs> or something along those lines happens. The other issue, of course, is when we come to uh, treatments and programs and services, I think we're finding the internet is not necessarily as good, if you will, as the in-person services uh, for providers and things like that. So when COVID is over, though it seems like that's not happening anytime soon, do you intend to go back to the way it was, bringing people in or have a mix of virtual and in-person? Well, I think courts are going to have to assess. It's not necessarily one size fits all, but I think it opened our eyes to maybe a hybrid approach. A lot of times in some of these cases, you have calendar calls and what we call first or second appearances. There's no reason why things like that can't be virtual. You may have case management conferences. You may have to resolve discovery issues or trial preparation issues. And we can really make it a, a lot more dignified for court users, and a lot more you know, user-friendly by not requiring necessarily a trip to the courthouse. So I, I would envision those type of proceedings, proceeding accordingly, virtually. But again, you know, some judges are going to want to have to bring a case in uh, for various reasons. And so I think judicial discretion is important in that regard. But overall, I think it's turned out to be somewhat more dignified than having everybody, you know, in a waiting room. And you're just not sure if your case is going to be called in 10 minutes or an hour in 10 minutes or two hours, uh, things like that. So I see it hopefully, you know, the benefits of it continue in that regard. And trials are, you know, a mixed bag as well. Some trials are very complex with um, a lot of documents and, and uh, exhibits and things like that may have to be in person. And uh, some trials may not have to be in person. So I, I think we'll probably see a little bit of both going forward. 
do you lose what I would call the fear factor where, you know, when someone comes into a courtroom and has to sit down at the table and the proceedings and all, it sort of gives you a sense of either awe or fear or something. But if you're on Zoom, I don't know if you get that. And maybe you don't want it. I don't know. It's family court. Well, I think we try to enforce the solemnity of the proceeding. You know, judges, of course, have to be robed on the virtual proceeding, and you have to maintain decorum and order. We've all had stories of calling someone on Zoom when they're in the car, for instance, you know, (laughs) and you just can't have that be the case. So you have to balance it out. You know, I think the best way to kind of sum it up is it's really not one size fits all. But, you know, if you have a case that you started with Zoom and it's not working, because any number of reasons. There's nothing to prevent the judge from saying, you know, we tried this, I'm going to require everybody to come in and set a convenient date for everybody to come in. I was looking at the report, the preliminary look at COVID Mm -hmm. impacts. Something caught my eye. It said mask requirements cause some issues for juries to assess credibility. So that's an interesting issue. What the concern there was is a person who is wearing a mask. It's difficult to assess their facial reactions to uh, what they're hearing. And judges and uh, certainly lawyers presenting their cases and the uh, litigants themselves, of course, want to, you know, read the jury. Uh, How is their uh, case being presented? What do they think the jury is experiencing? And there was a concern in that regard that some of the um, signals, inadvertent or otherwise, that could come from people's, uh, you know, facial reactions could be lost with mass. So some jurisdictions were requiring a clear mass, which was something interesting. So you could see how the uh, facial expressions were responding if you, to um, you know, certain positions taken or certain witnesses' testimony and, and the like. Did you have more domestic violence cases during the pandemic or you know, even now as it's tapering off? So the filings are, are down slightly. And what we've done um, in some jurisdictions is uh, we've also enhanced the way to file. So there was, a, you know, a process where you go to the police station or you go to the court. And now we've accepted electronic applications over the Internet. So that uh, was our concern is that people couldn't come out because of the pandemic or people were trapped because uh, the abuser was, you know, in the home with them. And so we think some of that contributed to the decline. But the country being as diverse as it is, we have other jurisdictions which have seen upward ticks in the filings of domestic violence. Some courts' dockets, they were so behind on their dockets because Mm -hmm. of the pandemic. Did that happen in family court and juvenile court as well? Yes, and that's a big issue because what I think that boils down to is an access to justice. People need their cases resolved. You know, if we have a child that's in uh, in placement with a social service agency, we need to get that child to permanency, either home or some alternative. And those cases, you know, they just need to move. Juvenile cases have to move, and obviously uh, domestic violence has to move. People have a right to, if they want to go through the divorce court, to get divorced and move on with their life. And so um, that's a concern that the Uh, proceedings are taking perhaps a little longer through the internet than they would in person with all the issues that sometimes, um, you know, arise through the uh, internet and technology. And then, and and of course, you're dealing with the technology divide and and things along those lines. So the pending cases is is a real concern 
uh, I think, for uh, most judges handling these type of cases. Yeah, I was wondering about, you know, and I assume there are a lot of juveniles or adults that don't have access to the Internet in their home. Mm -hmm. You have to bring them in? Well, yes and no. So judges, you know, have to be community leaders and they have to convene stakeholder groups. And so some of our jurisdictions are uh, making sure that people can go to a local public library, for instance, as long as they have privacy and can access the Internet there or local town halls government buildings. Of course, the concern there is that, you know, you want the uh, person who's proceeding in that manner to be private, not in a public room and things like that. So we have, uh, you know, encouraged stakeholders to, you know, work together uh, so that someone who does not have the internet at home, nevertheless, may have an alternative instead of having to travel to the courthouse. Does the pandemic still have effects now or have you learned to get by so that it doesn't? Well, you know, some people are still very, very uh, understandably, I guess, reluctant or wish not to come into court now. They may have other illnesses or other uh, health conditions. COVID is, as you noted, it's not over. So we're still struggling with some of the issues. We're trying to be, you know, respectful and, and dignified and making sure that judges uh, exercise their discretion accordingly and consistently with, with, with respect to what cases come in and what cases don't come in. Uh, but we're still dealing with the public and, and some concerns and some safety concerns of being in crowded rooms with the pandemic, you know, although obviously it's not as it was in March 2020, but it, it's still not as it were before then. Explain what the, the problem is with firearms and civil protection orders. Sure. So I know you uh, are well aware of the uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association opinion. I've listened to some of the experts that you've had on, and it's really been very, very informative. Oh, thank you. And uh, terrific, actually. And so what we in the DV uh, community, uh, we know that weapons are associated with bad outcomes. Some of the research confirms Professor Campbell and others have done research, and that's one of the things that the NCJFCJ does is, is make this kind of research uh, available, and we have judges that present on it and things like that. And so the firearms are a concern when you're with DV, and so we want to make sure judges are just have the background information and that they have strategies on how to deal with weapons in their communities. You know, the information, the checklist that uh, we have on the NCJFCJ uh, materials, uh, you know, involve uh, coordinated community responses, publicity on firearms and the protection through the DV process, safety planning uh, that includes uh, firearm-specific information. And we also want to make sure that the court, you know, keeps accurate records of firearms if we're going to order a firearm be surrendered. We want to make sure there's compliance. And um, at the end of the case, if if a um, a firearm is going to be returned, we want to make sure that background checks are conducted in those situations where we had domestic violence and and the case is dismissed or something on those lines. And so that's sort of an overview of some of the materials uh, that we make available through the organization to judges across the country. Every jurisdiction has their own statutes, of course, and we see a wide variety across the country of the uh, ability to um, effectively, in DV situations, uh, deal with firearms. How long is your term as president, Judge, and what are your goals? It's a one-year term. By the time you figure out how to do it or what you want to do, Uh uh, you're looking at the uh, goal line there. 
So the NCGFCJ has a strategic plan where we more or less planned our work out for 2000 till 2025 with six defined strategic goals. And so works planned our work and now we're working our plan. And they include things like equity inclusion and diversity is our number one goal, increasing membership and the like. But one of the issues that I'm concerned about is the impact on our society, if you will, on the well-being of our children. There are lots of issues uh, that many of us as adults are trying to figure out. Uh, the economy, the unfortunate nature of these mass shootings that we hear about. One commentator has equated that to like roulette, which is really unsettling. But we know that children are not only exposed to that, but they're also exposed to sex trafficking, bullying, sextortion, gun violence, social media, uh, pornography is only a click away on their uh, cell phones. And so when children come into our system, I think it's incumbent upon uh, us to make sure that they're assessed and that any trauma is addressed so that we don't have situations where we then have adults with unaddressed trauma. And the NCJFCJ certainly has a role in you know, training and uh, identification of those type of issues. And I think uh, one of the challenges we have um, as the NCJFCJ continues to grow is to make sure judges across the country uh, know about us and take advantage of our resources. There's a lot of research that we've done, premier undertakings in, in the research area. We uh, have a forward-thinking training, and we're a membership community of like-minded professionals. And the job of judging is, is isolated, for sure, isolating. And being able to reach out to colleagues, either in your state or another state, to discuss and, and figure out and, and uh, address issues that you're confronting is really a great service that we're enhancing and, and proud that we can offer to the judges to make sure that we can ensure the best outcomes for the children that come through the courts. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, Judge. That's Judge David Katz, the president of the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.